Thank you, William. Thank you, the guys, for leading us. And uh, another new song introduced to us there this morning, a great song, as we will learn that, hopefully, as we go forward. But we continue our series this morning uh, by looking at this next part, which is called No Greater Supper. No Greater Supper. And we're going to be turning to Matthew 26, Matthew chapter 26, and verses 17 through 30. Matthew 26, starting at verse 17. And this is what it says. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to, him, say to one another, or say to him, it is, uh, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me, will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the mount of olives. Let's pray, shall we? Before we look at this together. Father, we come to you this morning again, having opened your word and read it together. We're very conscious that even as we read it, it is living, that it is applicable for us today, that it speaks to our lives today. And that we can learn so much from it. So at the, in these moments as we come to it, we come to it humbly with minds and hearts that are ready to receive what you have for us in these moments. And we pray that by your spirit you will teach us much as a family this morning. So Lord bless us we ask in Jesus name. Amen. As we read through the gospels, as we read through the gospels, the shadow of the cross... And the darkness of that shadow grows as we read through those Gospels and and the accounts of the cross. Until we find ourselves standing at the foot of the cross. And in just a few short hours, Jesus would be suspended between earth and heaven. 
he would be suspended in the sky as the sin bearer of mankind. Yet, in these moments, we find him, even with that uh, ahead of him and in his sight, we find him with his disciples who were about to prepare the Passover meal. Well, it was the first day of unleavened bread, as we read in verse, 14, as we read in verse 17. The unleavened bread was a, a festival season. It was a festival which lasted seven days. And on the first day, we have the Passover meal, where the Passover lamb would be sacrificed and prepared. And so with this in our minds, the disciples ask a question, don't they? In verse 17, they ask, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Well, their question implies that they knew that Jesus knew, if that makes sense, they knew that he knew where the Passover would be. That's what that implies, doesn't it? That, that verse, as, as they ask that question. And they use their intuition, don't they, here, as they think about all that needs to be prepared. If you're going to have, prepare a meal, you're going to need to think about uh, preparing what it needs. What, do we need food and we need drink and we need to prepare the tables and we need to do all of that? If you're going to have a party or if you're going to have some sort of meal or this morning when you arrived, you don't just arrive and there's a cup of tea and biscuits sitting, that's all prepared uh, for you. And the disciples, they were thinking like this. But it would seem that Jesus hadn't divulged the location where this meal would need to be prepared and where it would be eaten. It seems that he hadn't divulged that. And this leads me on to my first point. And it's like last week's first point, that we see divine foreknowledge. Divine foreknowledge. Jesus directs them into Jerusalem to a certain man. Who? We don't know. He remains nameless. He doesn't give him a name. We don't know who this man is. But Matthew doesn't give as much detail here as the others. In the account of Mark and in Luke, well, they both tell us that this man would be carrying a jar of water. Well, why do they give this sort of detail? Was it helpful to the disciples? Well, yes. In fact, more than we know, I think. Because in, in those days, that man carrying that water jar on his head would have been distinctive. He would have been distinctive. Why do I say that? Because in ancient times, the men carried this skin of water and the women the jar of water. So it would have been unusual, I think, as they walked into that city to see a man carrying a jar of water. So the disciples went. We know it was two disciples because of what's written in Mark. And we know it was Peter and John because of what was written in, in Luke's account. And we shouldn't be surprised, like last week, that when they went, and they went into the city, that they found it exactly as he had said. Exactly as Jesus had said. The man with the water jar and the upper room which was prepared for them. So there they made preparations 
you know, when I was reading this and thinking about this again, sometimes we just skim over this. But actually, if we, if we really think about these moments as Jesus instructs the disciples and they go and find it as he has said, we should really never grow tired of seeing the, uh, the prescience, the, the foreknowledge, the sovereignty of God at work. We should, that, that should never grow tired in our, in our minds, in our lives. You know, even when we see it so regularly through Scripture, and especially through the Passion Week as we read these accounts, we should never grow tired of seeing that actually God is in control. Christ, His Son, is in control of all things. People and animals and everything, creation itself. But thinking upon this, I want to pose two sets of questions. And I think it's good that we do this in our own personal study, that we pose questions. I don't think that's a dangerous thing to do with a text. I think we should be doing that. It helps us to learn. And I want to pose two questions. I want to pose the first one and answer it. And I want to pose two more questions and answer that secondly. The first thing is this. This is my first question that I had. Why didn't Jesus go with the disciples to prepare the Passover? Is that a legitimate question? Why didn't Jesus go with the disciples to prepare the Passover? Well, we can rightly presume that Jesus is out of the city by what it says in verse 18. He says, go into the city. Therefore, it is presumed that they are out of the city, probably in Bethage or Bethany, where they would have lodged. And it was likely he was keeping himself out of the paths of those who were out to arrest him and put him to death. See, the time had not yet come. Well, this is the the other two questions that I have, and this is the second one. Why did Jesus not divulge the exact location of the feast to his closest friends? And why did Jesus arrange the upper room with an unnamed man who carries a water jug? Well, try and put yourself into this place now. Try and take yourself back 2,000 years in your mind. And as you would have stood here or sat here with Jesus, as those disciples would have stood and, or sat and listened to Jesus and his instructions, my question is to you, who would have been there? Judas. Judas would have been there. He would have been sitting there. And listening to all that Jesus had said. Judas the betrayer. And for us, in two weeks time, we're going to be looking at Judas' life. We're going to be looking at the steps that he took to betray this great king. But what we should know now is that Judas has already paid. He's already paid the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest for the life of Jesus. In verse 15 of this chapter. He has already paid that Jesus, at the appropriate time, that he would seek out an opportunity to to allow them to capture Jesus and to crucify him. And Jesus, of course he did. He knew this. He knew this. He knew that this is what had happened, that Judas had done this thing. And I believe in these moments, Jesus didn't want Judas to know the location of the upper room where they would eat and celebrate 
where the institution of the the supper that we now celebrate 2,000 years later would have happened. Jesus would go to his death, yes, but it would be in his chosen time, not when Judas chose to hand him over to his enemies. So that leads me on the second point here, that we see Judas' heart exposed. Judas' heart exposed. In verse 20 to 25, we see these, uh, these words and this account and this picture, uh, which, is, which is written for us as we see this meal that they, they ate together. Evening had come, and Jesus and the twelve reclined and ate at the table. And in the Old Testament, they would have sat for their meal. However, in the New Testament, uh, they would have adopted a Greco-Roman uh, habit of reclining. That would have been the habit for them. They would have leaned on their left elbow, um, and they would have then had put their feet away from the table, and they would use their right hand to, to feed themselves. That would, that would be how it looked around the table. They would have reclined in that way. And I'm sure they talked, and they laughed, and they enjoyed one another's company. They were brothers. They were best friends. They were co-laborers with Christ. But Jesus, in these moments, says solemnly five words, truly I say to you. These few words would have penetrated the ears of those who were listening. Knowing that what was coming next was of great importance. Would have been of great importance. And so Jesus went on to say, One of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Unsurprisingly, the disciples were sorrowful. They were sad. This is their king. This is their Christ. This is their Lord. But the disciples being the disciples, what is surprising is that they begin to ask Jesus individually. Well, it's written there for us. Verse 22. Is it I, Lord? Can you imagine this just for a moment? As, as those 12 disciples sat there with Jesus there. All that they had seen Jesus do. And now he has told them that one would betray him. And now they go round one by one and they say, well, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And it goes on and on around the room, around the table. No one expected there to be such disloyalty among the small tight-knit group. But notice this, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and get, please, please see this as we read this, no one seemed to turn to Judas, or even suggest that it could be him. And I'm sure you've been in a time like this, I have certainly been in times like this in the past where you're with friends or a group of friends and, and you're talking about 
one another in the, in the right sense of the word. And someone then begins to describe what one of your friends has said. And you know them well. And they, they, they explain what they said and the exact phrasing that they said or what they did. And you go, oh, that is just typical of we, Johnny, you know. That's just Johnny all over. And in Northern Ireland, you go, oh, he's just a wee hallion, you know. He's a bad egg or, you know, something along those lines. He's a wee skitter or something like that, you know. And, you know, you just know him because that's just the way he was. You go, yeah, that's him, big time. That's, I, I, as soon as you started saying that, I just, yeah, that's just him all over. Not here. None of that was seen. Great friends. Best friends. Loyal to one another and to Christ. Not a notion, as you'd say, that Judas would betray King Jesus. Judas had covered up his tracks well and left no one in any doubt and with any suspicion. So Jesus indicates that The one who dips his hand in the dish with me will betray him. And then Jesus makes two statements in verse 24. Two statements in verse 24. He says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. This is the the first statement. He states that nothing will happen outside of the control and the will of God. That is what that statement is saying. That nothing will happen, nothing has happened, and nothing is happening that is outside of the will and the control of God. All prophecy will be fulfilled through his death on the cross. However, what Jesus is saying here in his second statement underlines that because of this, because nothing is, is outside of the control of God, uh, because of that, it does not justify or nullify the betrayer's actions. You cannot do this and act in this sinful and wicked way because it is being used to fulfill ancient prophecies. You know, because... You, if you believe that that is how you're being used, even in your sinfulness and wickedness, and you think that now that sinfulness and wickedness is wiped away or accounted for in some way, then you are fooling yourself. And for us today, we can excuse our sinfulness at times. We can excuse our sinfulness, giving Satan more glory than he deserves. We must be careful of not doing that. Or blaming our sinful nature, you know, by our own actions, from our own actions. That's just, you know, that's just the sinful nature in me. Be careful to do that. Yeah, we're sinners. But take some responsibility. And so Jesus adds that it would be better for that man if he had not been born, a striking statement, to say the least. What Jesus means here is that it would be better for you to have not been born 
than to have been born without faith and die without grace. That's what Jesus is saying. To die this way means eternal devastation and separation from Jesus Christ. And so Judas, he shows something of his unbelief when he says, doesn't he? What does he say in verse 25? Is it I, Rabbi? Is it I, Rabbi? What's so interesting about this? Well, just a few moments ago, the other 11, they each asked Jesus, Is it I, Lord? Judas did not refer to Jesus as his Lord, but as his his teacher. This is a a great contrast between uh, verse 22, when those disciples did speak of Jesus as their Lord. And Jesus affirms his question. I'm not sure whether he expected this or wanted this. Because Jesus said to him, in front of those other Disciples, I believe, said this. You have said so. Judas is exposed. He's exposed. And now knows that Jesus knows. However, the disciples, although they would have now known that he was the betrayer, please get this, they do not know in which way he would betray Jesus or to what extremes he would go. Now, we sort of mar these verses sometimes because we know too much. We know what happens next, and we know how Jesus, uh, Judas acted and how he betrayed Christ. But actually, the disciples, they didn't have a clue. They didn't even know it was Judas who had betrayed him. So there's no chance that they knew how he was going to do it. They may have thought he was going to betray him in thought or word. But I'm sure they didn't have in mind what we now know Judas did by his deeds. Well, the application we can simply draw here for ourselves is this. That no thought, word or deed is out of reach or control of Christ. Our thoughts, our words and our deeds are not unseen. Therefore, our true nature is continually exposed to God. He knows our heart. He knows us intimately. And that is an encouragement and a blessing for us. But in, in the same way, it is a great challenge about how we live out our lives. Knowing that He is looking on. Wanting us to be those who are more like Him. And so we arrive then at this uh, section where the Lord's Supper is instituted. The Supper is instituted. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that we have observed uh, for many years. Many churches observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, For us here in the Connie, we observe it uh, every week. It just happens that this morning we don't have... The Lord's Supper, we have it tonight. Um, And we do it on a regular basis. We meet around the table. uh, And we, we do as Christ instructed us to do. It is a simple observance. 
But it is a substantial observance and a serious one too. The 13, they were eating in verse 26. Read that there with me. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. It's funny, isn't it, that this actually happened during the meal. It wasn't a sort of cutoff point, and then they had a totally separate meal. No, it was part and parcel of the meal that they were eating together. That is what happened there. And Jesus took bread and after blessing it or giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And Jesus would have given thanks as normal right back at the beginning of the meal. So as they began the Passover meal, he would have given thanks for the meal that they were about to have, that Passover meal. But at this point, again, it seems that Jesus... Gives thanks. Why would he do that? Do we eat our meal and when we get to dessert, we, we, say, we say our thanks again? I'll just tell you a story. I wasn't, this is not, I just remember this. Um, I remember when my grandmother, she got saved when she was in her 70s. Amazing how God worked in her life. Amazing. She's still living and alive. And... Uh, I remember the first Sunday where she came over. My brother, he's a bad egg, as you'd say. He is a bad egg. He, she didn't know. How, she didn't say grace before dinner, you know. So we said grace at the beginning. But then dessert was served. And then he said, oh, we'll give thanks. And so she's sitting there with her eyes and head down, you know, and not realizing at all what is going on. And we're all tucking into our dessert, and she's still with her eyes closed, ready to pray. But, you know, we, didn't, we don't do that. So why did Jesus do it here? Well, I believe he did it here because it stated it stated that something new was about to happen. A new observance was uh, about to happen. Like a marker set out for a new beginning. That this, what is going to happen now, is something that you all need to observe. A special thanksgiving uh, and, the, and the breaking of the bread was so significant because... Just in a number of hours, the next uh, day, Jesus' uh, body would also be broken. So Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body. Uh, And this, as we uh, know and believe, wasn't his literal body, but a picture, an emblem of what was about to happen to his body. And for us now, a reminder, as we take of it week by week, a reminder of what happened And the same applies for the cup in verse 27. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, giving thanks again for that, he gave it to them. He gave it to them. But then it says more, doesn't it, in verse 28. And we must see this because this gives us the greater picture about this observance, this this meal and supper that we celebrate now even. And we must understand that in Exodus 24 and verse 8, all the way back, Thousands of years before, Moses, you can go there, Exodus 24 and 8 if you want to, you will see that Moses threw blood over the people. A very unusual and actually uncommon occurrence. I think we see it maybe twice in the Old Testament. But one that had huge significance. Huge. It signified cleansing from earlier defilement and devotion to a new life in God. 
Did you hear what that one I said there? It, it was showing that it was cleansing from previous defilement. And now, not only that, but now they were devoted to a new life in God. And it was central to Israel's relationship with God and God's covenant with Israel. But the problem was, Israel was disobedient. They didn't keep the covenant. They persisted in the ways of sin. And therefore, they forfeited the blessing. And so Jeremiah... In chapter 31 and 31, he looked forward to a time. He looked forward to a time when God would make a new covenant. A new covenant. So when Jesus spoke of his blood being poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins in verse 28, he was stating that through his death would be the inauguration of the new covenant. That by what he was going to do, would show and begin and start the new covenant in my blood. And therefore, the pouring out of Jesus' blood on those who have faith in him, well, they would know the forgiveness of sins. And they would know what it is to have that restoration, restoration in relationship with God. That now we can have access to God through Christ All because we were cleansed. Cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. They now possessed Christ's righteousness as their own. Well, praise God for this. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and He is the blood. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. But it doesn't finish there. And as we wrap up this morning, we see one last thing. And it is this, that Jesus promised the disciples a reunion. There was a reunion promised in this last verse, in verse 29. Jesus, let's just read it, shall we? Maybe before I explain it, it says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in your Father's kingdom. Jesus was painting a picture here for the disciples. He was painting a picture. Whether they understood or not, I'm not sure. But we know that Jesus had told his disciples previously that they will be reunited with him after his resurrection. And that was the case. But these words of sorrow and hope point to an even greater day. They point to an even greater day where they will be reunited and enjoy the fruit of the vine as we see that as a picture and that new wine in heaven. What does that mean? Well, the wine is figurative for the greater glory. A place where there will be great glory, where they will will live with one another, they will be there. And a place where his disciples will be forever associated with Christ. What a promise if you were the disciples sitting there now. You were scared of him leaving and and going, even if they didn't fully understand what that meant, that he was going to be betrayed and he was going to be hung on that cross for the sins of the world. There was a promise here that they will one day be associated with him forever. 
And they will enjoy the overwhelming glory and joy of that eternal place. What a wonderful, hope-filled promise to leave the disciples that night. He is bringing them to the cross. But all the way, all the way, he is lifting their eyes to look beyond the present into a greater promised and eternal future with Christ. And so they sung a hymn. Verse 30. And they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, what's the takeaway for today? Well, isn't it clear that those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb are not only sure of sins forgiven, but of the indwelling power of the Spirit? A wonderful hope of sharing in His glory in the Father's kingdom, heaven. But for those who weren't washed and aren't washed by the blood, not literally, but we know spiritually, but those who here, who sit here this morning in this uh, meeting who are not washed by the blood, they do not know what it is to have Christ as their own and sins forgiven and a hope for a future. But they are maybe like Judas here, who is pursuing his own personal desires for status and fame and money and Whatever the world offers, that's what Judas was after. Well, let me tell you this, that's to a no avail. And it leads to an eternal death. But for the believer, we must not only see the simplicity of the Lord's Supper, but its significance and its seriousness. The ordinance of the Supper was the last given by Christ before he died. It was the last given to the church before he died. Before he was crucified. Therefore, there is no greater supper to be eaten than this. So may we give thanks for all God has done in and through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we all know, and may we all realize that as we come to the table week by week, which we should, all who believe, we're not only looking back to give thanks for all that Jesus has done, but we look forward with steadfast hope because we, we also, those who know him, will, will be associated with Christ forever. And that can never be snatched and never be taken from us. May we all know these things and live out these truths in our lives, we pray. Let's sing together, shall we, as we finish this morning. A hymn that we would sing as we come around the table normally, but we're going to sing it anyway because of the words as we, as we uh, ponder on this uh, passage that we've looked at this morning. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us, and we remember the promise made that all who came in faith and find forgiveness at the cross. Let's stand and sing.